Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll get going on our study for today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for your love for us, and that you are a Father who uh, gives us good gifts, um, particularly the gift of your Son, who died for our sins, Lord, and the gift of the Spirit, uh, who comes and comforts us, Lord, uh, in ways that we uh, don't even understand yet. We pray for more understanding through the power of your Spirit that we might be able to know you better. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. All right. Well, last week we were briefly introduced to the Holy Spirit. Uh, we talked about how we would be looking at facets of the Holy Spirit um, and what kind of a challenge that's going to be. Uh, today we're going to talk about the deity of the Holy Spirit, that He is God. Um, next week, on your schedule there, uh, we're going to talk about the person of the Holy Spirit, that He is a person. In fact, He is a He. These are all interesting things that uh, have uh, particular ramifications. We're going to talk about that. Um, as the weeks go on, uh, we're going to talk about his work in the Old Testament. How is that different than his work in the New Testament? Um, and that's going to be important because we serve a God that does not change. Uh, one of the difficulties I think that some denominations face in their view of Scripture especially when they view Scripture in terms of dispensations. Uh, the way they kind of split the Bible up into pieces, uh, in a way, splits God up into pieces. And we're going to see the dangers of that and what it means uh, to serve a God that does not change and is the same. All right. Good. That's just a preview of what's to come. That should fill you with excitement and uh, joy and happiness. All right, well. As a teacher, I've learned when you feel that people, uh, if they don't know how to feel, you tell them what they should be feeling. And then they automatically feel that way. Uh, it works every time. Okay. <laughs> well, today we're going to talk about the deity. Of the Holy Spirit. And this is important to us. I'll tell you why. Um, we are all sitting here today in Sunday school. Uh, most of us uh, are all believers because we believe. Uh, but it is to uh, imagine that we're all a bunch of brainwashed people that have no uh, understanding of the options out there to believe is not accurate. Um, after teaching philosophy for many years, and being a believer, uh, being uh, awakened in the Lord later in life, uh, I can tell you that believing is a work. Uh, that believing doesn't always come uh, so easily. And that when you study all the different views that are out there, 
Um, you can understand why so many philosophers become, became distraught. Uh, my dissertation that I'm working on right now involves heavily a guy named Martin Heidegger who uh, basically came to the conclusion that there is nothing else. Um, reality is what you're doing now, and when you die, that's it. There is nothing else. And I'll tell you this, for most of my life, that seemed to be the most logical conclusion. Uh, people do the best they can. Uh, they, they might need some religion to make themselves feel better about death, but in the end, when you die, it's just blackness. You're not even aware of the blackness. Uh, there's nothing else. You're not even aware that you're done. You're not even aware that something else uh, could be happening, but you're just sleeping. Uh, there isn't anything. You are obliterated upon death. And as sad and horrible as that sounds, it is a temptation to believe. Why? Is it because it's more logical? <coughs> no. Uh, is it because there are times uh, that it feels that way? Yes. Uh, sometimes we come to church, we're surrounded by people, that we call each other believers, and we're afraid to admit that there are times where it all feels like it's impossible. We don't like admitting those things because we're surrounded by people that we're assuming never uh, falters in their beliefs. We're in a society that thinks we're ridiculous to believe what we believe. And since society is basically high school, we, uh, we try to peer pressure each other into believing our views. And so we have an entire system um, of what we call media. And the media is all part of that way to bully each other into believing certain beliefs, um, absence of any kind of intelligence. Uh, intelligence, lack of intelligence never stopped Americans from believing anything. So, um, so it's pretty important, don't you think, um, how we go through life with a need to know um, what we're living for. Because uh, I can tell you this, um, after studying the depths of the view, and pretty much Heidegger is the highest sophistication of hopelessness that you can get to. Um, all other philosophers are kind of variations of that theme. Um, when you get to understanding the sophistication of unbelief, if I can put it that way, you understand that how you know something or have hope in something for what is to come is one of the most important things there is. 
If it is true that there is nothing after this, if Heidegger is right, um, it's not only foolishness to be here today, it's foolishness to be here. You understand what I mean by that? Um, it is stupid to have a cause of any sort. Climate change, who cares? Uh, the sun will eventually uh, die because that's what stars do. Uh, so what if it happens now or it happens billions of years from now? Uh, I'm not sure what the difference is. And neither is anybody else. I come um, talking about all these things in a very dark way because I want us to understand how it is possible to believe in what Scripture demands for us to believe. Um, we are expected to believe in a lot of very difficult, sophisticated things. How is it possible? Scripture says that that faith we have is by not our power. Whose power is it? The Holy Spirit. Imagine if the Holy Spirit were not God. That the Holy Spirit was a force that maybe came from God, that that force had an influence but was not God. It was the influence of God, and it was the best he could do. Imagine if the Holy Spirit were not God, um, and was just part of the feeling that comes from God. And maybe that feeling isn't enough, because our unbelief comes back. What I'm saying is, there is no comfort in the comforter if the comforter isn't God. And so when we look at how it is that the Bible tells us about the Holy Spirit's deity, about the Holy Spirit being God, this is one of the most important parts of knowing the Holy Spirit. Um, working on a degree in apologetics teaches you that if your belief system rests on a really good argument, um, you haven't heard enough arguments because it would be hopeless if that's all you got. Um, one of the most dangerous things I believe out there are in all these influx of apologetics books for teenagers to prepare them for the university, the secular university. Um, what they're doing is trying to give you a lot of really good arguments, and once you get into the public university, you realize that those professors are pretty smart. And what they know is that those arguments are kind of lame. And when they uh, show you how lame they are, it's no wonder these kids are like, oh, then why am I believing that? Because the power of belief has nothing to do with inductive or deductive logic. It has nothing to do 
with a really good thing that seems to make sense at the time. It has to do with the actual work of God coming into your life. And when I say life, I don't mean you start into your life the way... uh, I know there's a long introduction, but it's important. Uh, I don't mean coming into your life as uh, now uh, I go to church and I read the Bible and now God's a part of my life. What I mean by your life is I mean what it is that makes you living. And God, the Holy Spirit, is indwelling your living. That would be a transformation. You wouldn't be the same thing that you were before. In fact, a really good way of putting it is you would be a a new creature. So you're not the same creature that changed his mind over a really good argument. You're a new creature because your living is indwelled by the breath of God himself. So the Holy Spirit, being God, is everything. It's from there we can move on with the rest of the uh, things that identify the Holy Spirit. But if we don't start with the Holy Spirit being God, we have nothing. It wouldn't matter that he was a person. It wouldn't matter that he was personal to us. It wouldn't matter that he had power. If he isn't God, then we're without any hope. So, having said all that, we're going to turn to a lot of different passages Because what we're doing is we're going through a systematic study in about 20 minutes. Uh, So, let's, let's turn to Exodus 17. Exodus 17. Exodus 17, verse 7. It's talking about Moses... Um, when he uh, struck, uh, it's, it's going over when uh, he stood before, uh, if I look at verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And if you remember this whole scene, Israel, the children of Israel were rebelling, God told uh, Moses to strike the rocks so that water would come out. They were upset because they didn't feel God was going to take care of their needs. And he named the place uh, Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel. And because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? They doubted the Lord because they were thirsty. And this is speaking, if you see uh, in your translation there, L-O-R-D is capitalized. Typically that means it is not speaking of the more generic name Elohim. It is speaking of the specific name God gave himself, Yahweh. That's important because if we flip over just a few pages, a lot of pages, uh, Hebrews. Look at Hebrews chapter... Three there. Hebrews three seven. Uh, 
Now Moses was being spoken to by the Lord, back in Exodus, L-O-R-D, capitalized. And the writer of Hebrews is recalling this same incident. But he says this, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. As in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for uh, and saw my works for forty years. Okay, so what we're seeing in Hebrews is that the me is a specific uh, person of the Trinity, and it is the Holy Spirit. So what we find is the Old Testament and New Testament are uh, revealing a little more as uh, we understand progressive uh, revelation happens. And so, um, so we find that our d- divine names are given to the Holy Spirit. These are one of the ways that, the, that Scripture reveals the, um, how it is that the Holy Spirit is God. If we look at Acts 5... I, on purpose, didn't make uh, uh, little uh, bookmarks here because I thought if it takes us both the same time to turn to things, maybe you guys are better at sword drills than I was. All right. Acts 5, verse 3. This is a story of Ananias and Sapphira. This was uh, a message just a few weeks ago. Maybe many weeks ago, I don't know. Um, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived, conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So in verse 3, Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit. It's revealed in verse 4. Holy Spirit is renamed God. Okay. Uh, In the blanks above that, I'm sorry, in Exodus 17.7, they tested the Lord, L-O-R-D, and in Hebrews 3, it is, um, it is revealed that who they were provoking specifically was the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit. So Exodus and Hebrews show us that the Lord, Yahweh, is renamed Holy Spirit in Hebrews. In Acts 5, we see that uh, Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit in verse 3, who is revealed as God in verse 4. 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16. You know, there's a lot of John 3, a lot of people talk about John 3.16. You would be surprised how many important verses are 3.16 of some part of the New Testament. You should look it up sometime. It is very interesting how many times 3.16 comes up in uh, many of the books in the New Testament and how important they are in our doctrine. 
I don't know why that is. I think it's just a coincidence, but uh, it's interesting. Okay. 2 Timothy 3.16 states this. Uh, and this is uh, the uh, text that um, helps us understand about uh, the inspiration of all of Scripture. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. This is the central verse of our understanding of all of Scripture being inspired by God. Not uh, being inspiring, right? That when we read the Bible, it's inspiring to us and makes us feel warm and fuzzy on the inside, and then God reveals something while we're feeling fuzzy. Uh, a guy named Karl Barth came up with that little theory, and so did a lot of heretics before him. But uh, that's not what this is saying. It is saying all scripture is inspired. And that word there is breathed. Or uh, when we say, um, when you exhale, that's the idea. All scripture is exhaled by God is a really good uh, way to interpret that. And uh, if we look at 2 Peter... 2 Peter 1, it refers to this, uh, this breath of God. Uh, if we look at 2 Peter 1, 21, it says, Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that... Oh, that doesn't sound right. Something isn't right. Hold on. 2 Peter 1, 21, right? Mm-hmm. Or is it 1 Peter? Hold, please. Oh, I'm looking at First Peter. I knew there was something wrong. All right, there it is. That looks a lot better. You guys probably turned to the right one. Uh, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. Boy, isn't that interesting. Uh, you would think more uh, liberals would read that verse. Uh, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So this all scripture is given by God's breath, this breathing out is the Holy Spirit. Um, like I said last week, uh, words are powerful, but words don't have power unless the breath brings them out for people to hear it. All right, so the power there um, is... God power, if I could put it that way. So, Scripture is the breath of God. And 2 Peter 1.21, the Holy Spirit is that breath. The power of the Word. Um, there is nothing created that can be the power of God. God is identical to His power. If we think anything else, we run into horrible heresies. So the minute the Holy Spirit is spoken of uh, as the power of God, um, there's no way to understand that other than the Holy Spirit is God. Not is one of the gods, remember our Trinity understanding, but is God, the one single only God. Does that make sense? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three persons who are the one single only God who is personal. 
That's why we can call God in his oneness, him. All right. Not that. Good. Pronouns are important. Uh, the world is trying to remind us of that, I think. Even now. Okay. Uh, and there's divine attributes of the Holy Spirit. If we look at Psalms 139. Psalm 139, seven, starting with verse 7. Uh, David speaks of the omnipresence of the Holy Spirit. So in your blank there, it's omnipresence. Or uh, you don't want to say omnipresence, you can say... Um, uh, what's another word for that? Was that? All present. present. Yes. We don't need Latin. All present. But you can put omni if you want. I'm pretty sure that's uh, Latin, right? GCA students? (laughs) You guys should know these things. All right. Omnipresence. And here, uh, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, or death, or hell, behold, you are there. If I make my, uh, the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even uh, there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. Why? Because he is talking about the omnipresence, or the presence everywhere of the Holy Spirit. Uh, there is nothing created that can have an attribute of God. God does not have a life force that isn't really Him uh, that is omnipresent. That makes sense? Um, oftentimes we make our, um, our imitation of God too less of an imitation and too much of an exact one-to-one ratio. We imitate God in a creaturely way. We do this and even in having a body and a spirit. Um, that's a very creaturely way of imitating God in his, uh, as image bearers. It is a mistake to start thinking that our image bearing is exactly the way God exists. As if God is a lot like us. Uh, where he has some kind of main force and then a spirit that kind of goes out that's not really him but is this force. Uh, That is not who God is. God is a triune being. Three persons, one single thing, God. Uh, It bends our brains to the point where we want God to be more like a human. And the minute we do that, he's no longer God. And we're worshiping really ourselves. And that's what uh, most people want. Um, okay. Good. I keep bringing that up because I want us to always keep Trinity in mind. It's such a, it's such a basic part of who God is. I mean, we really should think about naming our church <laughs> Trinity. Hey. Okay. Isaiah 40. In Isaiah 40, 
uh, verse 13, uh, we see these questions. Um, oftentimes, Israel wants God to be more human. And they think that they can tell God how to be a better God. And in Isaiah, Isaiah reminds them they can't do this. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or who, as his counselor, has informed him? With whom did he consult? Or who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice? And taught him knowledge? And informed him of the way of understanding? If my uh, philosophy students could grasp this, while we're all trying to make God more moral and make him more understandable, right? I mean, that's why, we're, that's why we have Islam, right? Islam, uh, Muhammad hated the idea of Trinity because it didn't make sense, so he just made uh, Allah, Muhammad, with really cool powers. And uh, we saw how that turned out. Okay, so why are we talking about this? Here in Isaiah, it's talking about the spirit of the Lord and talking about who could be his counselor, who can instruct him. In Romans 11, which is uh, one of the greatest portions of uh, glorifying God, if we can put it, uh, doxology um, about God, it repeats these Words. <laughs> oh, the depth, verse 33, of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And then he quotes back in Isaiah what we just read For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, who was first given to him that it should be paid back to him again. And here what we have is the omniscience being attributed to the Holy Spirit. Omniscience, all-knowing, if you want to put that down. All-knowing. So in Psalm we have all-present, in Isaiah and Romans we have all-knowing. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 11. Uh, talking about all these different gifts. Uh, that the Holy Spirit gives to, the, uh, to those in the church. Um, and he's talking about all the different varying gifts of tongues and other interpretation of tongues and all those sort of things. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. And if we could compare that to Romans 15... Fifteen nineteen. Um, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as... Uh, can someone help me with that? Illyricum. Illyricum. Thank you. I had it last night, but it's gone now. Illyricum. See, it sounds easy once you said it. Thanks, Gus. I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And what we see are the, um, 
The power, and this is something I've spoken of already, is that the power that um, when God deals with man, the power that he um, distributes or enacts, or when we say the power of God acted on so-and-so, this is the Holy Spirit's work. It does not mean that the Father and Son do not have power, right? Uh, we know throughout all of Scripture, um, it is very, that is very clear that they are equal in power. That's why that's in our shorter catechism. That they're uh, distinct in persons, but equal in power and glory. But the way in which God chose to deal with humans was through his power, through the Holy Spirit. This tells us that our God is a covenant-keeping God. For we were even created. The Father was the sender, the Son was the redeemer, and the Holy Spirit was the power giver. And in Hebrews 9.14, Hebrews 9.14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And the spirit is referred to as the eternal spirit. Nothing created can be eternal in this context. So we have to know the quick little lesson on the difference between eternal and everlasting. So, there's a difference between something that had a beginning but will never have an end, right? Something that has a beginning, there's a time where it wasn't there and now it is there, but now that it's there, will never end. That's us. Um, But then there's this idea of eternality. Eternality means not only is there no ending, but there is at no time that there was a beginning. Something uncreated uh, can't be anything other than God. And so there we have eternality. Um, We see divine works of the Holy Spirit. Um, We don't have time to go through all these different... uh, All these different uh, verses, but... What I will say is the Holy Spirit is creator, according to Genesis 1 and Job 26. The Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates, or the regenerator, in John 3, 5, and 6, and Titus 3, 5. The one who takes something dead and through its power makes it alive. Um. And the Holy Spirit is the resurrection. Where there is a literal resurrection. Um, This is where the world begins to look at us like we are crazy. Um, This has always been a problem for the world. uh, This idea of resurrection. What's ironic to me is the world finds reincarnation completely... Uh, logical. Um, if we were to start talking about reincarnation, they'd be on board. Um, and so, 
in today's world, uh, this idea of you will come back as X. Um, even Nietzsche, famous for saying, uh, God is dead, is also the one that said, well, we have an infinite amount of time and a finite amount of stuff, so eventually we'll be all right back here. In some form or another, this will all keep repeating itself. We call it the eternal return. What is he talking about? He's talking about reincarnation. He's a Hindu, which is possible to be without having a god. Uh, so I get that. But my point is, um, it's just a little hypocritical to say, uh, your Bible talks about resurrection. That is so weird. Reincarnation? Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> uh, because in the end, and this is something I tell my students all the time, when you come right down to it, the beginning and the end is all impossible. When you really study evolution and how it all came about, and you get down to the idea of what the bang is, which did go away in the 80s and came back in the 2000s as the favorite idea of how the world started, and you get down to what that big bang is, it's impossible. Even with Stephen Hawking's little idea of M-theory, um, all he really does is just say, uh, the bang came from another dimension. Oh, where'd that come from? We don't talk about that. Um, it's all impossible. You look at the idea of a God that never began, you can't understand what something is that never began. It's all impossible. That, in fact, for it to be possible, you would need God. You would need God. The end is impossible. So, um, so that's why we have this great hypocrisy of why the resurrection sounds so crazy, but other ideas seem just fine. Um, the Holy Spirit is that resurrection. He is the one doing the power. That's a power there. And so in the end, with our last few seconds, why does it matter? Um, it matters because um, as we approach death, Because that's what we all are, even you young ones. Uh, time is our constant reminder that we are approaching death. Sin is why death is here. It is a curse. And time is that ticking bomb that tells you always death is coming. Even if you're a teenager, even if you're in your 20s, or 30s, or 40s, death is coming. It is a sobering thing to see pictures of people smiling and happy that you find out days after that picture they were found dead. When they were taking the selfies, they had all these dreams and ideas of what was going to happen, who they were going to be, what kind of happiness they were going to, they were going to have, and how that happiness would play out. And they daydreamed about it, they were excited about it, and at the time of that selfie, they were sure everything was going to work out great and they smiled big and they posed wonderfully and days later they were found dead. In 
in order to have confidence in what is to come and to have love for those around us so that we live our life in accordance with the Lord, you would need God. And you would need God to be so personal with you that he is not a part of your life, but is in your living. And this is possible because, number one, we are empowered by God, the Holy Spirit, according to Ephesians 3.16. We are enlightened by God, the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 2.10-13. And that thing that is so precious to us as believers, we have faith by the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2a. You have faith because it was brought to you um, as a gift. And I want you to understand something as we get further into the study. This gift is not the power of some kind of brain work. It is not merely a convincing of, and then God gave, handed you an argument that you believe. But this gift is the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, and that is where faith comes from. And so it is a miraculous personal, personal work. That's why it matters, because God did not send an influence. God did not send a force. God did not send happy thoughts. God did not send really good arguments as a gift. God indwells you. And with power. And he does so through the Holy Spirit. So that you might live. It is... uh, a miraculous thing. And we as humans, because we still have that sinful nature, will still want a human reason for believing. We will want a human reason for having confidence. We will long to keep returning to our vomit, digging through it to try and find something to give us confidence. And God is telling us to sit at the table with the Holy Spirit's work inside of us. So, that's why it matters. And so that's why next week, now that we know that the Holy Spirit is God, we need to understand that He is a personal God who works in us personally, extremely personal. We're going to talk about that next week. All right, let's have a word of prayer. Come see me for more questions. I'm sorry we keep running out of time. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you. We're grateful that we have the honor to be here to worship you today because of the work of your Son. And we have any understanding of this because of the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray for his work in our hearts today as we listen to your word. We ask for the work of uh, Andrew as he preaches, that he will preach through the power of the Holy Spirit that we will uh, humble our hearts before it. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Amen.